Thank you, Jim, for a most generous introduction. Uh, can I acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands we're meeting today and pay my respect to Elders past and present. Um, thank you, Jim, for the important work that you and the Centre does uh, on this critical challenge for, uh, for Australia. Uh, I am uh, sadly not still a professor, but it's nice to come to Swinburne to be able to play one here. Uh, and this is uh, work uh, which I dived into because of an interest in inequality uh, and uh, began thinking that I would be able to simply grab someone else's figures uh, and I quickly realised that the only way of getting a sense of long-run trends in mass incarcerations and drivers of incarceration uh, was to actually sit down and uh, do the research myself. So what you'll see today is a summary of two papers, uh, one forthcoming in the uh, economic record, uh, another in the Australian Economic History Review. As you know, Australia's always had a somewhat complex relationship with incarceration. Uh, European settlements uh, began with a convict colony, uh, but there was very quickly a notion that developed that criminality wasn't hereditary. Uh, in an environment in which uh, phrenologists and the like had argued that there was something genetic about criminality, uh, convicts such as Mary Reby or James Roos uh, very quickly proved uh, that it was possible to move from somebody who was transported to Australia uh, to a productive and effective citizen. Uh, and yet Australia now, as I'll show you in this talk, uh, is entering a second convict age, a period in which our incarceration rate uh, has risen to heights never before seen since Federation. I'll talk today about the trends in, the, in that uh, incarceration, how it compares to other countries, uh, and what are the drivers of incarcer incarceration. So let's, uh, let's kick off by looking at long-run trends in Australian incarceration rates. Uh, it turns out that if you want to build these series, you need two things. First of all, you need to know how many people were locked up. So there I'm uh, including people who are uh, in, uh, in all forms of jails and prisons. And you also know, need to know how many adults there are in Australia. Uh, you don't want to do an incarceration rate as a share of the total population, uh, because let's face it, there aren't too many two-year-olds behind bars. Uh, you want to do it as a share of the adult population, which means a little bit of torturing the data to figure out how many adults there were in Australia. So this is uh, the incarceration series going back to 1860. Pretty extraordinary. We can get figures uh, all the way through that period. Uh, and the line I'd encourage you to look at is the uh, blue line rather than the red dotted line, uh, showing incarceration per 100,000 adults. Uh, we start off uh, in 1860 with an extraordinary 660 uh, uh, prisoners per 100,000 adults, a uh, level of incarceration comparable to South Africa during the apartheid era, but one which then very quickly falls. Uh, by the time we get to Federation, Australian incarceration is down to about 200 prisoners for every 100,000 adults, about 0.2% of the population, and then continues to drop further still. Uh, it hits its rock bottom uh, around the uh, time of World War II, uh, it's around 70 prisoners per 100,000 adults. Uh, and even as recently as the mid-1980s, Australia was incarcerating around 100 prisoners for every 100,000 adults. Uh, that is 
uh, an imprisonment rate of about 0.1%. And then things begin to change. Starting somewhere around the mid-1980s, Australian incarceration rises and rises and rises. It is now more than doubled uh, to 0.22%, uh, 220 prisoners per 100,000 adults. Uh, that's the highest level of incarceration Australia has seen since 1899. How does that compare with other countries? Well, turns out their incarceration series are a little messy as well. So uh, uh, thanks to a few sleepless nights and early mornings, I built a series of incarceration for what I would regard as a handful of other comparable nations. Uh, Canada, which has the, uh, uh, a lot of the similar characteristics in terms of its history to Australia. Uh, England and Wales, uh, a full UK series isn't possible given the eclectic nature of the data for Scotland and Northern Ireland, uh, but England and Wales, you can build a coherent series. Uh, New Zealand uh, and the United States. Uh, and again, I've been able to get, in most cases, uh, a series which goes back to the 1890s. Um, so here you have the, uh, the series there. Uh, Australia, not hard to find. We're the ones with the highest rate at the very beginning. Uh, but you can see it doesn't take long before Australia's incarceration rate has fallen below the level of these other uh, English-speaking uh, democracies. Uh, so by the time we get to uh, uh, World War I, Australia's incarceration rate has fallen from being the highest in the pack to the second lowest. Then it sits around that level, indeed falling to be the lowest uh, level of, of any of the uh, five countries uh, during the 1970s. Uh, but then our incarceration rate rises, uh, along with that of New Zealand, uh, but not Canada. Canada has seen basically a flatlining of its incarceration rates over the last uh, generation. Uh, and England and Wales, while they've seen an increase, it's been much more modest than Australia. Uh, at the moment, New Zealand's incarceration rate is higher than, than Australia's, uh, and, uh, but, uh, but uh, England and Wales, Canada sitting lower. And then, of course, there's that stratospheric rise in the US incarceration rate, uh, going from something in the order of uh, 250 prisoners per 100,000 adults in the uh, early 1970s, up to a point in 2007 where more than 1% of American adults were behind bars. Just think of it, a society that locks up one one-hundredth of its adult population. That's an extraordinary change, but it's also notable to see what's happened over the course of the last decade. US incarceration has fallen by about a tenth, now to be down to 0.87% of the population, about 870 prisoners per 100,000 adults. And that marks a significant change uh, in the United States criminal justice, uh, approach to criminal justice. Uh, one illustration of that uh, in the uh, recent Super Bowl. Did anyone watch the Super Bowl, by the way? There you go, there's a couple. Uh, so uh, many Americans watch the Super Bowl just for the ads. The ads are very entertaining uh, and extraordinarily expensive. So if you're putting a political ad in the Super Bowl, you want to make sure it's good. What ad did Donald Trump choose to run during the Super Bowl? Well, one of the ads he ran was an ad celebrating an African-American nonviolent drug offender who he had pardoned. Alice Johnson, 63-year-old woman, uh, cried on TV 
as she thanks President Trump for pardoning her. Now, the fact that the party that in 1988 uh, ran hard against Mike Dukakis uh, for being soft on crime could now turn around and celebrate having pardoned a non-violent drug offender, to me says everything about how the United States criminal justice approach has changed. Over a six-year period, Texas closed eight prisons. Uh, the Pew Foundation has been one of the key drivers behind decarceration in the United States, working with 38 states uh, and using arguments around smart policing and the averted budgetary costs of not having to build more prisons. So the United States still locks up a terrifyingly large share of its population, uh, well, more, well more than Australia, or still around four times the Australian rate. But its rate has been going down, while our rate has been going up considerably. You can't talk about incarceration in Australia without talking about the question of race. And so I set about looking at how Indigenous incarceration has changed. Now, I mentioned before, when you're looking at incarceration as a share of adults, actually one of the trickiest things is working out how many adults there are in Australia. It's not that well measured. When you're talking about Indigenous Australians, you need to work out the uh, number of Indigenous prisoners as a share of Indigenous ad adults. And it's that denominator that's changing significantly. The Australian Bureau of Statistics is able to track the same people over time and identify that the same person is more likely now to identify as Indigenous as was true in the past. The effect of this is to change the incarceration rate. And if we update the population denominator, it drives down the Indigenous incarceration rate uh, in the past uh, because we have uh, the same number of prisoners but a larger Indigenous population. So you have to do a whole lot of uh, rebasing of the series in order to, uh, to get it right. Uh, it turns out for all its uh, skill with stats, the Bureau of Statistics is not that keen on building a consistent series of long-run incarceration. So that's what I've done my best to do. Now uh, this is a series going back to 1990, uh, and I'll, uh, I've shown you in the blue line uh, the overall series which I've, uh, I've constructed. Uh, and then the red line, uh, the Australian Bureau of Statistics uh, own series, uh, in this case, standardised for the size of the, the Indigenous population, for the age composition of the Indigenous population. This takes into account the fact that uh, people, younger people are more likely to be behind bars and Australia's uh, Indigenous population is younger than the non-Indigenous population. So if you just look at the uh, raw figure, uh, Indigenous incarceration at the time of the Aboriginal Deaths in Custody report in 1990 uh, was around uh, 1,000 prisoners per 100,000 adults, meaning that about 1% of Indigenous Austra Australian adults were behind bars in 1990. Uh, now that's gone up to about 2.5%. So around 1 in 40 Indigenous adults are currently incarcerated. If you look at the age standardised uh, level, which is what's appropriate if you're making comparisons, uh, Indigenous uh, Australians are 13 times as likely to be incarcerated as non-Indigenous Australians. Now that's uh, just a snapshot, and naturally there's differences, uh, naturally uh, incarceration accumulates over time. So we're looking at a photo, but what happened if you look at the video 
of the lives of Indigenous Australians and ask the question, at any point in that video, do we see a prison experience? The National, National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Survey, conducted by the Australian Bureau of Statistics, uh, asks people, uh, have you been in, in jail at any point in your lives? And if you take my generation, Generation X, Indigenous men born in the 1970s, 23% say that they have spent time in jail. So nearly a quarter of Indigenous men uh, spend, spend some time in jail. A Western Australian study which matched up uh, the uh, names of those who'd been in jail with the names of uh, all of those in the driver's licence registry asked the question, by the time they're in their late 20s, what share of, in of Indigenous men in Western Australia have been arrested, charged or summonsed? So note this is a broader definition than incarceration. Arrested, charged or summonsed. For the overall population, it's about uh, 2 out of 10. For Indigenous men, it's 9 out of 10. So almost all Western Australian Indigenous men have been arrested, charged or summonsed by the time they're in their 20s. Indigenous incarceration has become almost a normal life experience in many parts of Australia. So overall, 2.5% behind bars. In Western Australia, 4% of Indigenous adults are behind bars. Nine out of 10 men, uh, some experience the criminal justice system. I've also compared that with uh, incarceration rates for African Americans. Uh, the African American incarceration rate is uh, uh, frighteningly high, particularly in the early 2000s, going to 3,500 prisoners per 100,000 adults. But the process of decarceration in the United States has significantly reduced the African-American uh, incarceration rate, such that in 2017, the two lines crossed. As Noel Pearson puts it, Indigenous Australians are now the most incarcerated people on earth. So, to what extent is this driven by crime? Uh, you might say, well, the reason that we have lots of people behind bars uh, is because crime has been going up. Or conversely, you might say, the reason that uh, we've got, got crime going down is that we've locked lots of people up. So let's look at those two, uh, two possibilities. And let's start with the crime that is most consistently reported, homicide. We have all kinds of reporting issues for uh, other violent and property crime offences, but most criminologists think of uh, homicide as being a proxy for violent crime uh, and one which is pretty consistently reported. I'm able to build a long-run homicide series, which the, with the assistance of uh, uh, people like Mark Fernane, uh, going back to the mid-19th century. And then to show you both incarceration and homicide. So the homicide rate is that uh, red line, uh, bounces up and down a lot more than the incarceration rate, uh, and uh, the incarceration rate is the, uh, the blue line that I showed you, showed you before. Uh, anyone can be the uh, uh, victim of uh, homicide, so the homicide series is as a share of the total population. The incarceration rate, for the reasons I told you before, is as a share of all adults. So what's the relationship between those two? Well, if you look it up until 1970, there is a strong positive correlation between homicide and incarceration. 
in times in which the homicide rate fell, incarceration fell. In times in which homicide rose, incarceration rose. You see this not just in the overall trend, but also in some of the ups and downs. Look, for example, uh, at the period in the post-war decades, where you've got a slight rise in both homicide and incarceration. But then in 1970, suddenly the correlation flips over. Now we appear to have a negative correlation. As homicide rises, incarceration falls. As homicide falls, incarceration rises. For those of you who think in correlation coefficients, and let's face it, who doesn't, the correlation between homicide and incarceration before 1970 uh, is 0.9, very strong positive correlation. After 1970, it's minus 0.9. So that tells me there just isn't a consistent relationship between homicide and incarceration. Oh, by the way, if you're worried about being killed today, uh, you should take some reassurance from this figure. Uh, your chance of being a victim of homicide is about half what it was in the late 1980s. The drop in homicide in Australia has been large, has been startlingly large. Uh, the uh, the uh, risk that uh, my, uh, my, my friends and I faced when we were teenagers in the late 1980s uh, of being victim of a homicide uh, is half the risk uh, that my, uh, my sons will face when they're, te they're teenagers growing up today. What else do we know about other crime rates? Well, here the series aren't quite as consistent, but I've gotten the crimes that I can find uh, consistently reported according to victimisation surveys. So we can look at uh, robbery, for example, uh, in the, uh, uh, the rate, rate of robbery uh, in the early period, uh, around 0.6%, now 0.3%. So the rate of robbery is halved. Assault, 3.4%. Uh, down to 2.4%, so down by, by almost a third. Sexual assault, unchanged, half a percent in both of those periods. Although, if there's any change in reporting, I think this is the one where we would expect the largest increase in reporting. So it is certainly possible, although I don't have data to prove this to you, that the true incidence of sexual assault is down, given that the reported rate of sexual assault is constant. Motor vehicle theft, thanks largely to vehicle immobilisation and better, better car keys, better security mechanisms and the like, uh, down by two thirds. Uh, you're, uh, you're much, the, the way in which people steal cars these days uh, is by breaking into the house and stealing the keys. Uh, it's essentially impossible to hotwire a modern car. Uh, Break-ins though are, are still down uh, by almost half. Uh, attempted break-ins likewise. If I weight these crimes uh, based on their uh, 80s, 90s prevalence, uh, and then look at the overall change, uh, crime is down uh, by about a third, 38% over this period. So uh, the, uh, the chief drivers in, in, drivers in crime, uh, drivers that fall in crime, uh, appear to be uh, issues such as uh, better security techni techniques around cars, uh, better policing techniques for catching, catching offenders. Uh, there's some evidence that uh, the uh, legalisation of abortion made a difference as, to the, uh, as well as the removal of lead from petrol. Uh, there's also been theories around uh, immigration and unemployment for being partial drivers of the drop-in crime. Uh, but you are certainly not seeing more, incarcer more incarceration because there is more crime. We're seeing uh, 
record levels of incarceration at a time in which crime rates are significantly down. Uh, so uh, what do we see if we look across jurisdictions? Uh, you, might, uh, you might expect that uh, if there was something idiosyncratic going on, uh, that there would be a strongly different pattern across jurisdictions. There's a lot of numbers here. Essentially, the message I'd want you to take away from this uh, is that the rise in incarceration has been pretty constant uh, across Australia. Uh, overall, uh, in the mid-1980s, the incarceration rate was 96 prisoners per 100,000 adults. Now it's up to 221 prisoners per 100,000 adults. Uh, in Victoria, uh, you had a lower rate uh, in 1985, a lower rate today, but, but proportionally the increase has been pretty big, 140% uh, here in Victoria. Uh, and then you can look at jurisdictions that have, uh, or a jurisdiction which now has an American level of incarceration, so the Northern Territory, 347 prisoners per 100,000 adults in the 1980s, uh, almost now locking up 1% of the population. So uh, the, the NT uh, is locking up a larger share of its population than the United States as a whole. Uh, and uh, even my own jurisdiction of the ACT has seen a, a pretty substantial increase in incarceration. Uh, some of this was because we didn't have our own prison in the mid-1980s, uh, but even before the construction of that prison, you had seen uh, an increase in incarceration in the ACT. So building the facility isn't the only explanation. Uh, I've also looked to try and understand uh, what's, what's going on at the composition of the prison population now and in the, uh, the mid-1980s. Uh, you can see on the top there, we've got a significant rise in the rate of incarceration uh, and, of course, a rise in the total number of prison, prisoners. Uh, we used to have about 11,000 prisoners, now we've got about 43,000 prisoners. Uh, the prison population is, on a number of dimensions, lower, what you might think of as lower risk than it was beforehand. Uh, it used to be that there was only around 5% of prisoners who were female, now that's up to 8%. It used to be that Indigenous prisoners were only 11%, now they're 28%. It used to be that prisoners were in their late 20s, now the uh, average age of prisoners is in their mid-30s. There's a whole lot more grey-haired prisoners uh, than there were in the past. So if prisons were uh, heavily dominated by young white men in the 1980s, they are less, less dominated by young white men today. What are people behind bars for? Uh, fewer, fewer, a smaller share of prisoners are behind bars for homicide, a significantly larger share for assault. Uh, sexual assault comprises a larger share of the prison population. Uh, robbery uh, and uh, uh, break, and in, break and enter a smaller share. Illicit drug offences are a larger share now than they were in the past. Uh, prisoners uh, are less likely today uh, to have spent time behind bars, uh, although still uh, a majority of prisoners uh, are there on their uh, second or subsequent spell. Uh, the uh, the uh, increase in average sentences can be seen in those, uh, those figures of the average sentence ignoring prisons and parole, uh, and particularly the average time expected to serve, which is really what matters if you're a prisoner. Uh, the average prisoner was expected to serve 2.4 years, uh, in uh, the mid-1980s, now 3.7 years. Uh, significantly fewer prisoners 
are serving a sentence of less than a year, more prisoners are serving a prison uh, a sentence of more than a decade. And critically, the share of prisoners who are unsentenced has gone through the roof. Uh, this uh, reflects a significant tightening of bail rules. Uh, you are much less likely to be out on bail today than you were in the 1980s. Uh, back then, only 13% of the prison population were unsentenced. Uh, now, almost a third of the prison population are unsentenced. You can do a little back of the envelope uh, exercise to look at sentence length and bail law changes. Uh, the, uh, uh, if sentences hadn't risen since 1985, uh, the, uh, we, we would have uh, had an incarceration rate of only 167 prisoners per 100,000 adults. Uh, if the uh, bail laws had stayed unchanged, 179 prisoners. Uh, put those two together uh, and we've explained about three quarters of the total change in incarceration. So sentence length uh, and bail laws explain significant changes. Uh, the literature also suggests that uh, changes in policing practice are important, uh, as well as the probability of receiving a custodial sentence. In some sense, you should just think of the uh, uh, entire pathway between committing an offence and ending up in jail as, as having gotten tougher. Conditional on committing an offence, uh, you are more likely to be arrested by police, more likely to be charged. While awaiting trial, you're more likely to be behind, behind bars. Uh, you are more likely to be convicted. If you're convicted, you're more likely to get a custodial sentence. If you get a custodial sentence, it is more likely to be long, longer. We've also seen the introduction of new offences. Uh, One-punch laws uh, now mean that uh, if you're intoxicated and you throw a punch which cause, causes death, uh, then that will be punishable by a, se a separate offence. Uh, we've seen uh, the offence of uh, stalking slash intimidation uh, being used far more often. Don Weatherburn documents that from 2009 to 2016, the number of people convicted of stalking slash intimidation went from two to 4,000. So uh, police are more likely to make use of some of these uh, new offences. Uh, what is the overall effect of this increase in incarceration? Uh, well, I think we can be fairly sure that to the extent that prison has uh, a, a, an anti-crime effect, that we're into diminishing, if not negative, returns. Uh, we're at the stage now uh, where we are uh, not only locking up people who are bad, but locking up people who've made us mad. Uh, increasing sentence lengths probably don't have the, uh, the same impact as an initial sentence length. Think just of the, uh, a person who is uh, considering uh, holding up a service station uh, with a firearm. If you increase their sentence length from 10 years to 20 years, you've doubled the severity, you've doubled the cost to the general public. But it's very unlikely you've doubled the deterrent effect. But if you can change the certainty of being caught, you may well have a more significant impact. If they previously thought the chances of being caught uh, were 40%, and you now take those odds to 80%, you've probably had a much bigger impact on the probability that person will go on will, to attempt the offence. Uh, this is an insight which Mark Kleiman articulates in his terrific book, When Brute Force Fails, uh, and which underlies uh, what I think of as good parenting. 
Uh, anyone in the audience as a parent will know that uh, just ramping up the penalties on your kids really has as good an effect on changing their behaviour as being a clear and a certain parent. If you're capricious and inconsistent, your, your kids are much less likely to listen to you uh, than if they know each time they do something you don't want them to do, that there'll be a, cons a consistent result. Uh, we need to do a better job of implementing uh, these good parenting philosophies in the criminal justice process. We know too that the impact of prison uh, is significant on mental health. Uh, the mental, many, many prisoners have uh, mental health issues uh, and that some of those mental health issues are exacerbated through the period of incarceration. Surveys by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare find that prison is very rarely a university. Only 17% graduate with a formal qualification, vocational or university. But it is often a university of crime. Spending time behind bars breaks social ties with uh, friends and family uh, and makes social ties uh, with people who've committed other offences. We know prison has a, an intergenerational effect. 43,000 prisoners in Australia means around 70,000 Australian children will go to bed tonight with a parent behind bars. There's about 1.8 children of, for the average prisoner. Those kids will suffer greater mental anguish, be more likely to fall into poverty, uh, and be more likely themselves to end up in a life of crime. The intergenerational impact of crime uh, is worth, consi worth considering. We know too that when pres prisoners are released, uh, that around half say that they will be homeless. Uh, and the rate of recidivism uh, is, very, is very significant. Uh, so taking into account the risks that prisoners will uh, come back behind bars uh, is another reason to think about fixing our system. I believe we could learn a lot from the United States and from the Pew Project, which has been working on a bipartisan basis, ensuring that legislators who put in place criminal justice reforms uh, don't lose their jobs. It's kind of crazy to be saying we should be learning from the United States, uh, a country whose incarceration rate is four times ours. But in this instance, I think we need to look at the direction of change rather than the level of incarceration. When even Donald Trump, who has dragged the Republican Party to the far right, is celebrating his, soft, his, his uh, uh, getting people out of jail, uh, his uh, the legislative reforms and his pardons. It's time to ask whether Australia might have something to learn from the US. Uh, happy to say plenty more about the economics and politics of incarceration, uh, but maybe I should stop there, Jim, uh, and take some questions. Look forward to the conversation. Okay.